(laughs) (laughs) So I'm just going to assume that everything is working right now as we start recording. Actually, I'm going to do this belt and suspenders. Here we go. We're going to do some recording here in the cloud as well. And uh, let's launch it. So uh, this is Connect This. And we're going to be talking about some Urban Wisp type stuff today, Urban Wireless ISPs with our panel. I'm just going to launch right into con- to introducing them. We've got uh, Deborah Simpier of Althea. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Um, yeah, so I am uh, Deborah Simpier. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Althea. We are a software platform for networks, um, kind of a holistic multi-stakeholder system um, that empowers communities to be able to build sustainable networks, um, you know, quicker and more affordable than uh, legacy networks that have a single stakeholder. Um, and we have uh, networks that we work with in uh, six states and a couple countries and um, are always uh, kind of expanding here. Yeah, so when I want to build a wireless network, I have Travis to help me hold my hand. But uh, other folks that, that don't have that opportunity, they can turn to you to get a lot of that uh, um, the, the startup advice and stuff like that. Absolutely. Thanks so much. Uh, We also have Mason Carroll, who's with Monkey Brains in San Francisco. Welcome to the show, Mason. Thank you. Um, So I just told a little about myself, I guess, what we're doing. Yeah, definitely. Um, I'm Mason. I'm a lead engineer over here at monkeybrains.net. We are uh, primarily a wireless ISP in the San Francisco Bay Area. We have about 14,000 subscribers last time I looked. And yeah, we cover the San Francisco, Oakland, Alameda, South San Francisco, Bay Area. And yeah, Urban Wisp, we're doing it. Yeah, you, you've, you've demonstrated. Whenever people ask me, uh, hey, how does this stuff actually work when there's a lot of moisture in the air? I say, well, monkey brain seems to have figured it out. <laughs> we got some fog there from time to time. <laughs> we also have Travis Carter. Um, Travis, you're from a company called Uzi. Uzi, yes, US USI. We've shortened our US internet name down to just USI to simplify it. So, uh, yeah, we're a fiber and wireless WISP in operating primarily in the city of Minneapolis, and um, so we've been we've been doing wireless now for ten or eleven years. So there'll be a fun conversation today to talk about uh, the good, bad, and the ugly associated with doing wireless in a metro area. And, and what cities and others can do to try to change that equation uh, to some you extent. You got it. So, and I'm Christopher Mitchell, the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. Uh, once upon a time, I thought this would be a good idea. And now uh, I'm here talking to Travis every week with a rotating group of folks, trying to keep it light, trying to have a good time, trying to really bring you know some uh, perspectives of people that are generally doing things rather than uh, commenting on the news all the time with uh, people like me and our heads in, in the clouds. So I want to start off today and I want to start uh, by, by asking you, Deb, um, let's just say for a second that um, the Biden administration hires me and tells me, Chris figure out what we should do on broadband. And I come to you and say, Deb, tell me what I should tell these people to do on broadband. Um, you know, from your perspective, working with these, these innovative local companies, uh, local grassroots efforts in many cases, what, what do you think they should do? Yeah, thank, thanks for the question. Um, so I, I think what we've seen is um, over the past you know, years, we, we've allocated a lot of broadband funding and granting um, that, and, and we're still more or less in a similar place to the digital divide. Um, 
one of the other things too is, you know, um, we aren't looking at the digital divide in a multifaceted nuanced way. Um, it isn't just about building infrastructure. Um, there's actually a recent study done in Portland, Oregon, where 13% of low-income folks with multiple choices of infrastructure, fiber networks, um, still did not have any access to internet. So if we're really talking about how do we fix broadband, how do we fix this digital divide, um, I think we need to have a more holistic approach to how we approach funding, right? So instead of saying, okay, we need 25-3 or 100 or, you know, only the areas that have 10-1 or we don't want to overbuild or all of these sort of, you know, nuances around building, you know, fancy pipes, as I call it, right? So the internet's a series of tubes, you know, you're always going to need to have some, you know, tube to the home, but um, it doesn't mean that people can access it. Oftentimes there's things like uh, um, they can't afford it, it's not the right language, they don't have the devices. So I would encourage the FCC to look at it um, from the services that we want to deliver to folks, whether that's um, telehealth, distance learning, um, you know, job creation, all of the sort of things that are the benefits that come from the internet. That's really what we want to bring to all of our communities. So um, instead of looking at how can we deliver, you know, 25-3, let's look at how do we deliver distance learning? Because that also encompasses things like ping, latency, um, you know, consistency, mm-hmm. one of the that um, and then of course also cost. This is the biggest thing. In Obama era, um, Sadi uh, was talking about uh, what are the main reasons why people can't access the internet, and cost was the main factor. Um, you know, uh, in our urban network in Tacoma, Washington, right? There are lots of options for internet access, but we still went to homes that um, couldn't consistently afford to access the internet. Yeah. So um, you know, so, I. Sorry. Oh, I was just going to say, I feel like, you know, to some extent, what you're describing is to some is what we've seen in Chicago and Denver, where they both had referenda. And I think the FCC would say Chicago and Denver are great examples of places that have figured it out. <laughs> like They don't have a problem. And yet people there voted 90 percent of the people who voted in Chicago said we got a problem. We got to do better on broadband. Um, and it seems like that's what you're sort of saying is like this isn't about some like you know, federal database of measurements. It's about whether people are connecting for school and telehealth and stuff like that. Absolutely. Well, a lot of it is inside the home too. What's really interesting is Microsoft has a lot of data on people that don't access the internet at broadband speeds, right? So there, I think it's like 40% of the U.S. doesn't access the internet at broadband speeds. And oftentimes that's because, um, you know, you might deliver broadband to the door, but somebody's got their router in a cabinet, right? Or, you know, uh, they don't have the right device. They have a very old cell phone or laptop they're using and they're only getting a couple of megabits per second just because the device isn't very good. So um, I think, you know, when we're looking at the areas that have need, we need to look at what people are accessing the internet with. And then we need to look at how do we, um, how do we deliver services instead of how do we, you know, deliver a fancy pipe. So my first suggestion will be then to deputize an army of people to break into people's homes and make sure that their routers are ideally placed. <laughs> well, you know, it one of the probably, things that it would probably make Mason's life a lot easier. <laughs> we're excited about actually doing some of that at the router level um, and doing some dynamic, you know, um, uh, frequency and spectrum allocation um, within the, just the home router, too. So I think we can make routers smarter. And that's where technology can come in and be helpful, too. Yeah, that's interesting. So, so Mason, let me ask you the same question then. Um, and then, you know, sometime in a few hours, we'll get to Travis and and maybe ask him what his opinion is. But <laughs> so what do you tell the FCC right now? 
Well, well, I mean, I was just, I was just wanted to dovetail onto uh, what what Deborah was saying about it's it's really challenging the the issues facing um, you know access to internet. It's for different households and different neighborhoods, the challenges are very different. Like from uh, an MDU where you can bring a gigabit pipe to the building, you know, people in those buildings are still going to have problems versus single family homes and other neighborhoods are going to have very different problems. Like. We have some examples where we're providing, um, you know, 100% free gigabit internet to like an MDU, a low income house. So they, all they have to do is get a router and plug it in and they will have 100% free gigabit internet. And you and, still and I have- think Just because you said that, I think it's important. You, there's usually someone from the housing authority, which is going to help them. So it's not just a matter of telling them to go out in the streets and find a router. It's, it's even easier than, than you might've suggested. Yeah, exactly. So I mean, that's but that's been the challenge. We've had to build a program where you know the someone someone from the city has to you know get a router for them, make sure it's plugged in, and it's always just really important to like to have an internet service provider where they actually you know they don't just have a gigabit connection to their unit. They actually have someone they can call and ask a question to, especially with low income housing people too. Like a lot of times they'll they'll have gotten a free device that has an ethernet port from someone or somewhere and they'll just like plug it in and they're like, I don't know, I have a router and I plugged it in and it's not working. And so, you know, you really have to, you know, see the, you know, see the problem of access and you have to really take it through all the steps from providing broadband to the home that's fast enough um, you know, delivering it into the home, making sure they have a router that can plug into it, making sure that there it's installed properly, having someone that can answer the phone. And then you also have another interesting issue here we see in San Francisco, we have a big diversity of uh, housing types, like some, we have a lot of SRO housing, which is single room occupancy housing, um, which is, you know, mostly like, uh, you know, single people, maybe they're drug addicted or whatever versus low-income family housing very different needs so like in the sro housing actually just a wi-fi project in the building is going to meet their needs really well because they don't need to have their own home router whereas you have low-income family housing it's really important to have a real you know have their own home router because maybe they'll have a tivo set up and maybe they'll want to have their kids are going to need to access internet so um, you know, it's, you really, I guess my, so to bring it back to your question, you know, whatever the program has to be, it really needs to be, um, focused on all the levels from broadband all the way down to educating people and just, you know, there's no one size fits all solution. You need to actually bring in community partners. You don't want to just, you want to make sure you don't just give all your money to Comcast to subsidize a network that they were already going to build. You want to make sure it's focused on areas where they weren't going to build, and, you know, you don't need to convince anyone to build broadband to MDUs. You need to, your MDU money needs to be spent on getting people routers. And so it's just, you need to really look at all the different pieces and really target it um, from education all the way to broadband. It's, 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 that's actually the, the answer to the uh, digital equality. So. Yeah, some of, these, some of the points that, that both of you brought up just really resonated with things Travis and I talk about whenever we're, we're discussing some of the issues that I, I know you face, Travis, when you're trying to figure out how to how to help with the many connections you have in MDUs. Um, do you want to just share any thoughts on that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Helping is helping. I feel is very challenging if people don't have access to devices, and if they don't have access to the education or at least the resource that they can contact to help them. Um, 
it, it's it's been a real challenge for us. So during this pandemic, we were doing something uh, similar to what Mason was doing. I was saying, hey, you know, here's free access to the gigabit Ethernet jacks. And we found out very quickly that we had no laptops, we had no computers, we had no, you know, routers were relatively easy to get our hands on, but the next level of technology was far more challenging. So we really, uh, we hit some pretty serious roadblocks very quickly in the program. One of the things that you've done though, historically, I think, which I haven't heard many others doing, is you actually, when you're installing MDUs, you'll put a device on the wall often that does a Wi-Fi signal, right? Yeah, we, we, we ran a program that we, uh, we originally called a smart jack, which was having a router built into the wall in the units. And um, we had some pretty good success with it. Uh, what we learned is as, as router technology is ever expanding and changing, having something hard fixed to the, to the wall ended up being not maybe the best idea. So we went up with a modified version, which was an Ethernet jack with a router sitting right next to it. And then we just built into our business model. If we lost a few every year for people taking them with them, uh, so be it. You know, it was just part of part of the deal. So our current model is, and actually where we're evolving to, because we've it's become very clear that speed is no longer the number one issue for people. It's reliability. So we've been really pushing heavy into the wireless wireless mesh in people's homes, where they can get uh, two or three little Wi-Fi pucks, place them around. And have coverage. Yes, it might not be gigabit in every corner, but there's at least coverage. Mm -hmm. So I want to I want to move on just quickly because I want to make sure we have plenty of time to talk more about the cities and. Um, well, and did, Frank, did did we did we ask the FCC to do something here? Uh, to some extent, I mean, I think it's a matter okay. of. I mean, it, what it comes down to is the FCC looks at this all wrong, and and the answer is obviously to write big checks to AT and T, Comcast, and Charter Spectrum so that they. Um, are reimbursed for the the sixty five dollars a month they want to charge these families. <laughs> well, but 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 we sh we should touch on one thing the FCC did very well this year. I feel, mm -hmm. and it goes un unheralded in our community is the opening up of the six gigahertz band for unlicensed use. I think that's going to revolutionize where we're at. So if the FCC is listening, we could really use some low band spectrum, something like down in like the 2.5 gigahertz or lower. That would be very useful for what we're trying to do because it is difficult to wire MDUs. It is difficult to uh, propagate these signals in urban areas when it's up in the five and six gigahertz range. It's very, very, very challenging. So we, we need some lower spectrum, but where you're going with it, I feel it's all going to get auctioned off. There's too much money there. Why would they? Why would they put it into the unlicensed pool? Given the fact of they can collect billions of dollars for it, for its usage. So yeah. So I'm Mason or Deb, do you want to react to that? Because I'm, I'm very curious your experiences, how that resonates. Yeah, I think I mean I think that's exactly right. I, I'm I'm wondering how you're thinking about the because the lower bands are also penetrative, right? They have some non-line of sight properties, so you have more of an opportunity to have interference, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, do you think about it more as like a, a SAS, like we see with CBRS or TV white space type of system? Um, I think yep, that yep. makes a lot of sense to me. And that so that would be you know, lower bands would be allocated in that way. And yeah, I think the CBRS model has really proved that it's going to be effective for, for band reusage. Because the, the, the problem WISPs have is interference. Right. And, and in so a lot I'm of just, cases, they have interference we, from other... Oh, go ahead. Go go ahead. I'll ramble on all day. What does that mean? What does the SAS CBRS approach mean, Deb? 
Um, yeah, and you know, I think uh, you know, Thomas might be able to explain it a little bit better. But it's it, it's a it's more of a dynamic, you know, frequency allocation. We get a grant, you know, to utilize that spectrum for a certain amount of time. But there are folks that have priority, um, and so it's it, it's not uh, you get this license for you know a years period long that you use, but it's um, it's more of a shared spectrum model. Um, but perhaps Travis would like to um, expand on. That. Maybe that's yeah. So. The best case, the example I always use is here in Minneapolis, you know, we're right smack dab in the middle of the continent. So the CBRS bands that were released in the 365 range were historically used for Navy. And uh, I, my understanding is predominantly on aircraft carriers. I've lived here 51 years. I have never seen an aircraft carrier on the Mississippi River. So this band effectively has been idle. So the idea behind these SAS services is that you can check out a piece of spectrum and use it for a period of time as though it's yours and not be interfered by other people while you're using it. Very effective use of, instead of having the entire country or an entire census block owned by T-Mobile, we could all have our own little shared components of that spectrum depending on where we're at. Because I'm not gonna interfere, my radio will not interfere with Mason or Deb, no matter what, no matter how powerful it is. Because they're not allowed to use that that grant of spectrum yeah. slice or and, channel that you're using. And I and I'm in Minnesota, Mason's oh, in sure. San Francisco, Deb's in Oregon. We're not going to interfere with each other. Yeah, yeah. The, one of the I think this sort of leads into the CBRS discussion that I wanted to bring up with you. And and the thing that I find amazing about that is what what Deb just brought in in terms of the fact that this is spectrum that will carry well beyond the the walls of a building um, is exactly what we're looking for to try to expand high quality access quickly and and Mason I want to I want to throw this at you uh, to some extent this approach to me seems ideal for rapidly getting families online who are currently not connected because um, whether they're in single family homes or not if you can just hand a family a puck to me, it seems like you have so many more opportunities to bring that family online than if you have to send someone to their home to put, you know, monkey brains, um, transceiver on the roof or something like that. And and so I'm curious, are you planning on incorporating the CBRS technology into your uh, services that you offer? Well, I'm. I'm not really, I've, I've seen some presentations about CBRS. I'm not a super expert on CBRS, um, but you know, I do think, I mean, everyone for, through all the different technologies, everyone, everyone in WISP loves the idea of having, just being able to put some kind of puck or tennis can or whatever out your window, out of your window and not have to do an installation. Um, you know, I, I think you're, I mean, you know, I, we've, this has been the promise of WiMAX and Wi-Fi and free the internet and Starry. You've heard and it before. Every technology has promised this. And I think it may come and it may be CBRS. Um, but I would say um, for fixed broadband, I'm, I'm, I'm skeptical. I'm probably more on the skeptical side of the whole thing. I think monkey brains will remain, will continue to, uh, do fixed wireless using dishes uh, for the t for the time being, but um, I think CBRS seems really cool. I, also, I think a lot of people in low income housing too. I you know we're talking back to like you know what people in low income housing need, and you know a lot of them say they just want their cell phone to work better. And I think there's a lot of opportunity for uh, 
for CBRS to help with uh, cell phones working better in their areas. Like it's, you know, we have in San Francisco, like, you know, the 4G network's awesome downtown, but you go out to Hunter's Point and it's hard to get a cell phone signal. And you're like, well, you know, why is that? So if CBRS can help the cell phone and mobile, then uh, I would think that would be a huge benefit to everyone. But um, I'll let someone else take the CBRS question. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, we are actually deploying CBRS right now in um, Tacoma uh, network um, in conjunction with a pilot with the University of Washington's Connectivity Lab. Um, and what's exciting about that was that we're not only deploying CBRS, but we're also moving the EPCs um, closer to the edges. Um, what are EPCs? <laughs> so these are the um, the, the the computers that. Um, that do the, oh gosh, how do I explain this? Um, essentially an LTE model has a different model for authorizing the client devices. Um, and they have small computers that um, called an EPC that, that does that kind of work. Um, and typically, you know, if you uh, are a larger telco, you're gonna have this at your data center or you're gonna have um, this on the cloud. Um, and a, a lot of folks are using, you know, cloud-based uh, uh, EPC type of providers like Druid. Um, but what's exciting about the work with the University of Washington is that, um, you know, when we deploy the EMBs, the, the sector antennas for CBRS, we can also locate the EPC there in a more distributed model. Um, so this will net enables like smaller communities, smaller wireless ISPs to be able to kind of run this in a more distributed fashion. Um, and perhaps also interoperate better. Um, so it isn't as siloed like we see with these big, you know, Verizons or Sprint or whatever. Um, so we did, we actually um, put our first CBRS antenna up about a week ago and we have our uh, first client online. Um, and uh, it's, it, 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 it did not have building penetration. We were not able to uh, penetrate the building, but we're still sort of experimenting with different types of um, gain on the antennas, different antennas. Um, and so I'm hopeful that we will see a model with, with uh, CBRS that does um, look more like a, a puck or also um, have that device level um, down to the cell phone um, type of network. Excellent. Travis? So our initial pilots for CBRS were very similar to Deborah's experience. It was... Um, First off, you don't get a big allocation of spectrum. You only get a 20 megahertz spectrum. So you're going to be looking at maybe 50 megabits of service. Um, you're looking client? at the total. Total, okay. Yeah, so it's a shared, it's wireless. It's a shared medium. Um, you, then, you're, then you're talking penetration-wise, your, your distribution was six to eight city blocks. So, you know, you're not, you're not talking a huge, you're talking about one, kind of like one mile around a building. And based on a tremendous amount of variables, uh, vegetation, um, you know, where, how far you are out from the cell site is, is, will vary your user experience. So yes, I don't know if there's really gonna be a day where we just pass out a bunch of pucks like you do in a, you know, in an 800 megahertz LTE type model, but it certainly could make it where you put, maybe put something in the window and because the, the whole real mission here is self-install. If you want to roll out 30,000 clients, you have to be, they have to be able to install it themselves or it has to be built into their phone or their, or their device. That's the holy grail of this type of system. 
I'm not sure CBRS gets us there because it's operating in the three the three five band. We just don't have the penetration we need. We need to be much lower than that. But I think the FCC will. They you know we have 2.4 Wi-Fi, uh, but they won't open up anything. I don't think they open anything else up. I know in tribal communities they just opened up 2.5, but we won't see that because in any of these because I think T-Mobile sucked most of that up now from schools across mm-hmm. the country Devious. so yeah so unfortunately you know you just you kind of i like i've told you to us wireless is just a tip of the spear we need we get wireless out there to get people online and then we back we back roll them with a wired technology it's that that's our mission because wireless there's just not enough spectrum available there isn't a six gigahertz band I'll, I'll, I'll give you that which is a huge boon and I guess that would be under Trump's administration, right, Chris? That they did that because you always. That. I, I just I call it the FCC. You always you always politicize it. To me, whoever did it, I don't care. So we have <laughs> si- we have, we have six gigahertz to play with today, which really you'll start seeing in twenty one. You'll start seeing products. The first ones will be point to point radios that ship at six gigahertz. I think it's going to be a game changer for the WISPs. It's just applying that into a metro area is going to be challenging. And then we can, because you can talk about mounting assets and everything else, but it's just going to be challenging to have. You just, uh, we just lost you, Travis. Oh, sorry. It's, it's going to be tough to have enough mounting assets for six gigahertz in a metro area. Yeah. Um, and I'll, I'll mute you again remotely if you make any political comments. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so I feel like this, this does roll into um, the discussion that we want to have about the role that cities can play, because, you know, we talked a bit about the FCC's decisions about spectrum. We've talked about, um, you know, the um, um, the technology in terms of where it works. But to some extent, uh, cities have the power to do some things that may make our lives better, uh, to encourage more investment, and they can do things that will make it harder. And Mason, uh, I think it's it's really helpful to start in San Francisco, where you've been involved in this um, as monkey brains, at least. I don't know that you've been particularly the one working with the Board of Supervisors. Um, but but I think it might be useful to talk first about experience with with MDUs. Uh, you know, just and tell me tell me that I'm wrong because I'm I'm never afraid of being wrong if you listen to me. But um, over six years ago, I think if you'd asked me, I would have said like MDUs will almost always be the providence of like a cable company that has an exclusive contract and like no one really wants to deal with the cable the 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 mdu buildings and things like that and since then there's all these business models that are just focused explicitly on mdus and it seems like it's an exciting place to be so what can cities do around md mdus to make sure that we have lots of of vibrancy in that space well great um this is a great topic for me um the um the San Francisco Bay Area is actually really fortunate. We, in a lot of ways, we have a number of different ISPs in in the Bay Area, and in the ISP game, I heard someone like a few years ago use this term "revenue density" for for telecom. And so, like, you know, I, I'm just probably been a term in the usage for years, but I heard it, and it just explains the whole ISP game to me frequently. Single family homes, you know, you know, maybe there's two hundred dollars of of internet bill paid per acre, whereas an MDU, it's thousands and thousands of dollars. So ISPs are competing for an MD, in the MDU space. And there's a pernicious scheme that has become more and more pernicious where um, 
certain um, property management companies and even REITs who own billions of dollars of assets, you know, get into cahoots with the cable companies and they actually charge uh, door fees and revenue share, uh, all sorts of dirty arrangements where they actually charge the ISPs to enter the building. You know, out in a rural area where there's no, you know, there's one ISP in town, it's actually the opposite. The ISPs, the AT&Ts actually extort the property owners to build, to pay all their costs to bring ingress to the building. So anyways, getting back to this Bay Area and the MDU thing, um, the, San, the San Francisco has passed an ordinance and I wish my colleague Preston was here because he's really up on all the policy stuff, but um, they passed an ordinance here that's saying that if anyone in your building wants um, to have any ISP, they can have whatever ISP they want. And in San Francisco, that's been a really big boon for us and other small ISPs, because you have a situation where there's a lot of internet, internet choice in San Francisco, but many, many thousands and thousands and thousands of um, MDU units have a choice of one ISP. And that ISP charges them the highest rates. So it's ridiculous. So the, so the you know, Comcast or I'm not, I shouldn't even call it ISPs, but a lot of them do this game where they actually pay the building and they charge exorbitant rates to the tenants. And it's especially disgusting. This actually does happen in low-income housing buildings. I keep, keep harping, harping on this. I don't, I think they're a little bit, they're not, I don't think they're necessarily aware of which buildings they're doing it in because it's just their whole, their whole plan, but right. it's extra gross when you're <clears throat> extorting money from housing i think so san francisco passed an ordinance saying that you can get into any building you want and um monkey Rains has taken advantage of this to um to demand that we can are allowed to provide access in some of the buildings and it's been really helpful for us because um like a lot of times these property managements are national so even if though we've been kind of knocking on the door for years they're just kind of like yeah these decisions aren't really made here i don't really know who you guys are so it just kind of actually forces them to talk to us. And usually when we can talk to the right person, we're able to negotiate something really good. <clears throat> and um, yeah, there were, were, they're working on a similar legislation in, um, in Oakland right now. We were working with the Board of Supervisors in Oakland to, uh, and, and other stakeholders, uh, community groups to pass a similar ordinance. Um, um, can I keep going for another minute? I've got another part of this. <laughs> uh, well, let's, I think let's, let's, yeah, let's come back. And, and I'm just, I'm curious, you know, Travis, do you feel like um, you need a battering ram to get in some of these MDUs? Yeah. I mean, when, when vacancy was low, it was more challenging to get in. We're starting to see some of those ease up now. And I think it's, it's a real challenge for ISPs when they're first starting out, especially when they're unknown, but when you get to a certain density level in a neighborhood. So the approach we used in the beginning is we used tenant pressure letters where we would send the tenant a letter and indicating that we would be happy to bring service into them, but they would have to work with their landlord uh, to get us uh, the ability to get in there. And that worked really well in the beginning. Now, as we've gotten a little bigger and a little more mature, what we're noticing is new development and new construction are coming to us to be part of the initial onboarding package of the building, which allows us to get our cables and our equipment in there on, on the front end. But if I was a, if I was a brand new ISP starting out doing um, MDUs, 
I would uh, really try to target uh, the smaller MDUs, the ones that aren't owned by national conglomerates or large REITs, because those are very challenging uh, to Mason's point to get in and can be very frustrating. So if you can find the local owned ones, maybe the smaller eight unit or smaller type MDUs, those are very, uh, tend to be a lot easier to penetrate. Now, from le from legislation, it would be really nice if we had something like that in San Francisco that they have, but we don't have that. We have to do it the old-fashioned way, convince and sometimes beg to get in. And Deb, what are you seeing uh, across the different places that, that you're working? Well, I think, you know, very much similar things. Um, I do see that I think the, the internet as a whole is changing, right? We're starting to decouple the, the infrastructure layer, the the fiber to the home from the service layer, similar to what we saw in Ammon, Idaho, and we've seen in some of these rural communities where, um, you know, you have the, uh, the, the fiber um, uh, is being, you know, built in one way where it's publicly owned, and then you have many different service providers competing for the top to be able to offer things like, you know, streaming video and all these different things. So I think, you know, that vision for um, MDUs is really where we need to get to if we're going to look at a more equitable future, right? Where we have, you know, that um, the it's almost like a condo. Like if you own a condo, you also own, you know, cooperatively own the elevators and so forth, right? So what if we thought about, you know, apartments like that? Like there was a cooperative ownership of the the wiring to the building, and then the you know, jack in your home is owned by you, and then different providers could compete for services over the top layer. And I think that's where we can get to some really kind of fun economic models. So hope to see some pressure toward that. And that's, that's what I feel like Mason taught me years ago was that like, ultimately the, the dream is more or less that I think you have wiring within the building that you're pretty much neutral to, and you have access to a room where you can just like, you know, plug in 4F or whatever, and that person is, is on. And um, you basically don't have to worry about anything else, right? And I mean, is that too much of a simplification, Mason? Um, sorry, sorry, could you repeat the last part of the question again? I, well, no, the question, I guess, is like, ultimately, I feel like if, if we're separating some of this out, I feel like to some extent, you, you just want to focus on, um, not even worrying about what's in the building. I think you just want to basically think about a room in which you basically have the DMARC from like your network and then you're just throwing it onto the, you know, like into a switch there and, and you don't have to worry about how the building's wired or anything like that. Yeah. That's great. You know, I think what uh, WISP operators all have in common is that I think places where WISP operators have, have found a niche to solve problems, I think we're some of the more creative people in the ISP game. The, you know, we get entry into buildings that are just like, you know, for whatever reason, you know, the incumbents haven't been able to service. So like you just said, we like, are you sort of referencing the Amon model? Like, uh, no, no, I was thinking more like just like an equipment room where like, um, you know, I'm sure that, you know, you're dealing constantly with buildings that are 50, 70 years old. And like, you're probably oh, yeah. trying to figure out like, how am I possibly going to connect this, this person in this unit? And like, ideally, you know, you would just, you would have like the whole building would be laid out and it all like home run to a single room and you would have be able to do a, abstract everything else away. So, I mean, that's part of what, and I may have mis misunderstood what Deb was saying. So um, we'll come back to that after you try to untangle what I've just given you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, we're, we're really technology agnostic. You know, we, we have some buildings where we put, you know, MDs where we have, uh, we bring a high capacity licensed radio to the roof, bringing like 10 gigabits. And, you know, we go to the telephone room and there's old hundred year old two wires. And we have, 
you know, we use DSL technology to break it out. We have brand new build MDUs, like Travis was mentioning, where we were there from the beginning and we got all the cabling right. We have some buildings that have fiber installed from the units to the MPO. So we, you know, we'll, we use whatever technology is required to get it done. We even actually are now working on a project where, um, and uh, where we do, we're participating in the Amon model thing, which has been really cool. We have all these subscribers that we didn't even have to work very hard to get at all. So we're, we are, uh, we're just, we're just out there getting it done. I, I'm not sure if that answered your question, but no. Uh, but I still, I have this vision of you dangling off the side of a building, stapling, <laughs> you know, some sort of a thin wiring to it, and like a climbing rig, um, trying to get it done quick before someone calls the the police. <laughs> that that happens. That definitely happens. <laughs> so Deb, what have I missed in terms of the abstraction that you were just describing? Because I, I feel like I didn't capture it entirely. What's the transition? Yeah, I think that's pretty right. I think we can, um, basically what we're looking at here is, is both different economic models um, and also different ownership models, right? So who should own that fiber to the, the, the fiber to the apartment or the fiber to the condo in this MDU? Should that be owned cooperatively? Should the individual homeowner own it? Should the landlord own it? Should the carrier own it? Um, uh, and so some of these kinds of questions I think can lead to where we have a more, like you said, neutral platform, right? Like, a, you know, that, um, like, can you imagine if like the carrier owned the, the elevator that wouldn't work, <laughs> right? And they, they were charging a toll every time you wanted to go take your groceries to your house or something like that, right? We want to look and see how do we, you know, how do we make different economic models that where the providers of bandwidth incentives are in line better with the users. This actually reminds me of a court case in the 90s, uh, maybe it's even the late 80s, when we started seeing more municipal overbuilding. We saw municipal um, cable competition. And uh, TCI at the time, I think, brought the city of Glasgow um, to court and asserted that um, all of the wiring within the customer's home, within my home, for instance, was owned by the cable company. And so if, um, if, if this new municipal operator wanted to use it, they would have to rewire the home entirely. And um, the courts rejected that. But as I understand it, so I mean, all the wiring within my home, even if Comcast did provide it, it is mine as a homeowner and I can reuse it as I see fit. But there's, this is a debate in different MDUs, as I understand it, as to who owns it and who can use it under what terms. Mason. Do you mind if I jump back in? No, um, go ahead. And, and also what we've been seeing um, in, in our market is um, a, a sort of a pernicious incarnation of that where um, there'll be a new MDU going up and one of the one of your favorite you know incumbent carriers comes to the build the, the builders and say oh like fiber is the future you're going to want to do fiber and of course we all love fiber i don't disagree fiber is the best but then they're like and so let's just instead of putting in all that cabling that you were going to install let's just put a single strand of fiber to each unit and then it's going to be the best technology ever and you're you know it's going to solve internet forever and that's well and good but then that your favorite incumbent carrier then comes and terminates all of that fiber into like a pawn enclosure where it essentially de facto locks them into a technology and you can't you know you can't have um that care you everyone's building is basically locked into that carrier because all the fiber has been spliced into their equipment and so another carrier can't come on and say hey we want to plug that in because you'd have to break um, break the individual fiber strands mm -hmm. and you're just going to do more damage than good. And that essentially locks buildings into, you know, a single technology and a single carrier for the life of the building. And we're seeing this happen all the time. And sometimes it takes the form of 
actual cash payment to the building. Sometimes they offer to donate the materials. Sometimes they're just, you know, just get bad advice, but they, you know, they're, they're actually really aggressive about this. And so we're out there trying to encourage, this is one of the big initiatives we're working on is in markets where there's multiple ISPs, really encouraging um, carriers to, even if you're gonna put in the fiber, we love fiber, but put in, pull multiple strands of the unit or terminate the fiber in a connectorized way so that people, that different carriers can plug into the fiber. Go ahead and pull that cat five to the unit. Even if you're gonna pull the fiber, the cost is almost nothing because you really wanna create options for the future. And I mean, this has been really important, especially in some of the fiber work we've been doing with the city of San Francisco, where, you know, we have, once again, the city wants to bring fiber to a house, to a building, and they're like, oh, it's great. We've already, we've already run fiber to all the units and the city brings fiber and you're like, okay, well, can't we connect our fiber to that fiber? And you're like, no, you can't because <laughs> you're going to have to break everyone's internet in order to do it. It's not... It's not fiber to fiber. So I think but, building but these, are, those, these are standards yeah. that cities should have. I mean, this is where it comes down to. And that's um, to some extent where I hope we'll see some of these lessons where they'll they'll require proper structured wiring. So, Travis, let me let me have you jump in here. Mm -hmm. So I guess I've always approached the problem a little from the other angle. And I try to tell our guys, be the user. And what I mean by that is when a user moves into their their building, or they're into their apartment, it's really nice to have a clearly defined wall jack there for each of the providers, whichever provider they choose, they take their router that they probably already own, at least half the people do, and they just plug it in and they're on. There's nothing more frustrating than shared infrastructure, shared wiring in a building where we have to, okay, we can be out there next Thursday to plug you in and you go down to the DMARC and cross connect F4 so what we've tried to do is we've tried to run two two ethernet runs and a fiber run to every unit now i'll tell you the fiber runs we did 10 years ago are still unused but it helps sell the sizzle sometimes to the to the land to the building owner that they're going to have fiber there it sounds really high tech uh, when in fact the one of the incumbents will use one of the cat5 cables we'll use the other one and the telco or the uh, cable company will use the coax and that seems to be the the best scenario for the end user and quite frankly the best scenario for us because we don't have to roll a truck because what i don't know about san francisco what's interesting in minneapolis and i didn't believe it when we first got into this 50 percent of the apartments move every year i mean the churn is unbelievable i don't get it i hate moving i'll sit here for the rest of my life just to avoid moving is Every year, 50, so the turn and the churn, and so you have to have a really effective way to onboard people and to, to, you know, to take people off the system because the nine times out of 10, they'll, you know, you want to give them a good experience. So they'll, they'll hook back up with you at the next building they go to. But one, one final point for us, technology synergy is very important for us. Every unit where we have a jack, it needs to be gigabit up and down, it needs to be ethernet. We're not, you know, like GFast or any of these uh, DSL platforms. We've gotten out of that completely. So if we cannot wire a building or utilize wiring that's already in the building to provide gigabit to the unit, we actually won't do the unit. We won't do, we won't wire the building. Hmm. So because, because it's, it's too confusing, right? Chris and well, Deb have gigabit I mean, and then, well, and yeah. Mason moves in and, he, and it's like, well, no, you get 80 down and three up. I mean, it's just, it, it creates confusion that yeah, the end user what if, doesn't know. What if there's no other option in that building? Like, say it's just the limitation of the of the wiring that's been done. You guys will pass on a building if you can only do 100. Uh, 
what we'll do then is we will do um, either raceways in the hallway or in those, in those buildings. Yeah. We'll do fiber in the hallway. Like, you know, you probably have these things too, these huge concrete bunkers they built in the sixties where you can't get a cable through to save your life. Mm-hmm. They they'll either, they'll either go with an external option, you know, meaning down the, um, down the hallways or yeah, we will just, we, we just won't be able to service that building. We have, because otherwise it's it, for us, it's just, it's too confusing for the end user, you know, why we can't have service. So I wanted to, I want to sort of recap for a second. There's two things we've identified so far that cities can do, um, policy can do to try to um, deal with this. One is to require uh, the right of ISPs to come in when invited to provide service. The other would be having proper wiring to make sure that. Uh, new construction or major retrofits would have, um, you know, the proper wiring to uh, enable ISPs to do this without accidentally severing their rivals' networks, as mm-hmm. I sometimes hear about. Um, it's amazing how those accidents happen. Um, but there's another piece of it that I, I think is sort of the the really expensive option, and that would be cities building significant amounts of of infrastructure so that, you know. Um, a, a provider doesn't have to figure out how to get from uh, that city block all the way back to the pop or back to um, an, you know some other aggregation point. And uh, I'm just I'm curious because this is where I feel like there's a lot of different opinions and technologies impossible. But um, but Travis, since we ended with you last time, um, you know what what would you be looking for if a city came to you and said we really want your services, we want to make it easy on you, and we're mm-hmm. willing to build conduit to your spec or whatever? What are you looking for? So we've we've had a neighboring city of Minneapolis do that, where they built a conduit system to our spec, and then we pulled fiber in um, after the fact, and that actually worked out very well. Um, you know, we it was no different than if we did it ourselves. I think what we've found from cities, though, is that's kind of the minority, and trying to get that, you know, you have to have a really strong city manager or a CIO in place to really drive that through. Um, so we try to baby step it a little bit, like in the city of Minneapolis, we, we, we have asked for just a very simple thing you know, that a new construction that they have a carrier neutral conduit from the D mark out to the boulevard with a carrier neutral handhold that we can utilize. So, so we're just baby stepping it, trying to get that through mm-hmm. and that probably will never happen. <laughs> um, and so, you know, I, and I don't know if it is, if it's like this in other major cities, but it's not a huge political issue for people because everyone has cable and cell phones and everything else. So when you're a third provider coming in, there's not a, you know, there's not a huge, there's not a lot of people to back you. You know, you've got to have a lot of constituents that want your service. And most of the people at the city, when I talk to them are solely focused on the digital divide, which I'm not, you know, I'm a fan of, but it's um, it's not a focus of theirs to build infrastructure. At least again, up in Minneapolis. Mm-hmm. I don't know what it's like in San Francisco. I mean, Mason, are you guys utilizing a bunch of conduit from the city of, Saint, of San Francisco on your build? Well, well <laughs> that's a, a longer story, but we, we do have, Monkey Brains from for our network, it's mostly wireless and we have leased fiber out to a whole bunch of locations. But for we do a project where we have free gigabit internet for about 2,000 doors of low-income housing. And that's a kind of a neat project because 
so the city of San Francisco has a has a pretty extensive fiber network that they use for public safety, for fire stations, for libraries, their own operations. And what's neat about the program we're doing with them is, like I mentioned before, how you know in downtown San Francisco there's plenty of fiber, plenty of connectivity, but out in some of these low low income neighborhoods are underserved. So they actually can just decide to bring the fiber out there. Um, and then when they bring it out there, we light it up for them. That's kind of our relationship with them. They, okay. they bring, they set up the dark fiber. We plug in the switch. We answer the phone. If the, if all of the cat five to the units all to the spec, then we're happy to put in switching and operate the network and answer the phone. Sure. See, and so we don't, yeah, we don't necessarily have that ability um, because all of the fiber that's in the ground is owned by the city. And my assumption is, is there's some law there that doesn't allow private companies to utilize it. And, you know, the law of, the, of bad bureaucracy, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, cause, cause, cause what's interesting here, at least in the city is you'll have the city fiber, the county fiber, the state fiber, the federal fiber. I mean, we run into this stuff all the time when we're digging, but we have zero access to it. Yeah. And, no, and, I not, think, and, so, and not a lot of motivated people to change that. Yeah. I mean, there's two pieces of this that, um, and I'm really curious, Deb, because you have so many different experiences with different folks. I'm, I'm going to throw it to you next. But I think one of the things to be aware of is cities often have a fiber network that's been provided by the cable provider. And the cable provider has been very smart to basically say, hey, um, you know, we'll build this this cable network for you, but you can only use it for these purposes. You cannot use it to connect um, business customers or the public, and you cannot give it to Travis, no matter what. Um, and and it used to be that they would do that, and they wouldn't charge for it. It was part of just the franchise of being in a city and having access to the rights of way. And then Comcast and others figured, hey, we can start charging a lot of money for this. And um, and so a lot of cities are now paying for that, but they're using fiber networks that are what we call conditioned. And and they do not have the ability to operate on them um, to just do any traffic. Uh, but then there's other places where they do. And frankly, I think the bigger issue is just one of unwillingness to try new things rather than that first issue of a, of a legal uh, restriction. Uh, but Deb, what are you seeing out there in terms of, of uh, this idea of, of if cities were trying to you know, provide infrastructure for multiple users, not necessarily in the way that Ammon is with, with, um, with uh, virtual, uh, with the software-defined networking and that sort of a thing, but actually through multiple conduits and things like that? Yeah, I think I think you kind of hit the, the nail on the head there when you were um, saying that they're sort of unwilling to sort of probe what the limitations are of what they can do. Um, so we we see this also too with a lot of these nonprofit uh, networks too. Um, you know, uh, Link Oregon in Oregon um, is a higher education network, um, but doesn't have a framework or cannot, you know, um, have any of these private networks access their you know thousands of miles of fiber infrastructure. Um, so I'm not, I, I'm hopeful that these sort of, um, you know, push from 5G and smart cities and IOT will, will push us to sort of bring these discussions to light. Um, but I, I, um, I also think there's some exciting work being done with dig, dig once, um, where we can start to think about, um, more kind of public, uh, you know, putting in infrastructure, you know, once when you are opening up that road and what that right away is and starting to have those discussions then um, instead of afterwards, <laughs> once it's already covered up and, and done and built. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think, I, I think basically what I'm seeing is, is a lot of underutilized um, fiber um, that's sort of siloed behind our inability to have conversations about it. 
is there is there a future in which the ISPs just start to become irrelevant where city provides conduit to the corner um you know maybe originally the ISP figures out how to get from the outside of the block into the building and then the the condo association carries it the rest of the way and over time there's just less of a even service that ISPs are providing or do you feel like that's there's reasons that will never come to pass well i think a better solution might be the, the checks and balances and the sort of um, shared benefit of a multi-stakeholder model that's interoperable, right? So at the core of the internet, back at the IX, we all go to the meet me room, right? And everybody interconnects and is interoperable, but still has owned infrastructure. So I, I, um, I don't see any reason, physical reason, precluding that from happening in cities either, where multiple carriers, um, a large enterprise, nonprofit, municipal, um, folks can own different pieces of the hardware. You just need a platform to interoperate on. Um, like we do very successfully um, at, the, at this sort of uh, tier one level of the internet. And I'm curious if Mason or Travis want to react to that. And I can guarantee you that uh, Travis will not use the word multi-stakeholder. <laughs> <laughs> well, so let, let's talk a little bit operationally, and then I'll, I'll get Mason's thoughts on this. So you also have the practical fact of operating a fiber network, and you always have to be pay, playing defense. And what I mean by that is, is there's going to, it's not if, it's when, there's going to be a fiber hit, and there's going to be a cut, and it's going to take out a certain number of subscribers. So the ultimate question is, how do you handle resolution and repair? So let's, let's just assume for conversation that the city is responsible for that. And you as an operator on that network, you know, what is going to be your answer back to your, your customers who are demanding that service gets back up and running, but the city only operates from eight to five Monday through Friday. You know, so you, you, there's much more to it than just the conduit in the ground, because I would rather own and control my destiny than be relying on, on a third party, especially for that mission critical piece, the backbone, because the backbone could take out thousands of people if it's mismanaged. So let's go to Mason, but I also just yep. want to note in defensive cities that firefighters operate 24 seven. Sure. Yep. No, I'm with you. Well, I mean, I think you're, you're Travis, you're getting to the point of resilience. And I mean, I think that's the, that's the whole business of building a network. You have, you build a network, you build backup and different links are going to have more resilience and vulnerabilities. So you need to focus on diverse path and all sorts of, you know, just uh, trade-offs, I guess, when you're building a network. But I think, you know, I think currently when you're built, when you're planning a fiber route across an urban area, you know, like you may go and you know you may plan a certain section of the conduit and section of the fiber build in your conduit and then you need to like arrange for a mile of Zayo's conduit and then it might go to a splice can on AT&T's conduit and some of these you know long builds can be quite complicated and involve engineering with um, a lot of different providers and people you may have your fiber and someone else in AT&T's conduit I mean these arrangements are already happening and and are standard it's you know usually an engineer from one company talking to an engineer at another company to figure these things out. Um, I think that municipalities should get into the game. I mean, they own conduit sections that no one else has. Um, you know, certain public utilities like PG&E are very heavily into this game on both on their poles and their conduit assets. They're very expensive to be in, but, you know, no one's going to cut a PG&E conduit. So I just think municipalities 
it'd be nice if they had some smart people working in telecom who could understand the value of their assets, be willing to like lease them out, um, trade them in a, in a smart way. I know our, I know some of our partners in the city of San Francisco are oftentimes reluctant to make these arrangements because they actually worried they're going to, they're worried they're going to get taken advantage of because they have been taken advantage of, but then sometimes they'll come back and they'll, you know, they, they throw like, oh, we're thinking about leasing fiber and they've come up with these prices and you're like, these prices don't, are so high and, it's, and you don't want to be taken advantage of, but then, but then you want to be yeah, It's so, part of a 47 page contract too, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. The dealing with getting a check from the city is very difficult. So, you know, it's, it's, there's not, there's not, I, I, but I think in, it would be smart for them to be um, in the business. And also like, you know, if they can, if on their fiber network, you know, they, they should be building their fiber network, building their own smart cities applications on there. Then you're going to have more of a l- larger knock team who understands the network, which is going to mean you understand the value of your network. You're going to have more telecom contracts. You're going to understand, you know, the value of the contracts you're buying. And then also it helps you understand the values of your assets that you can lease or trade. And so, um, anyways, I just like to see cities be willing to mix it up a little more, even if they're going to get taken, to, even if maybe they don't do great on every single deal. Deb, I cut you off earlier. Oh, I was just saying, I mean, isn't this similar to the peering agreements we have, like deeper in the network? I mean, we just bring them out to the edge. That's what I'm kind of hoping for. And and I mean, to some extent, like I've, in my mind, um, simpleton that I am, it's like, it's like, what if that meet me room was just extended to a lot more city block corners? Yeah, that's the vision. That's the vision I have is that let's bring that. I mean, and what we saw that happened there when we have that kind of interoperability is that the price for bandwidth um, at the data center has been going down consistently over, you know, more than a decade. Um, and, and I think that kind of, um, you know, uh, interoperable marketplace will, will also have the same effects at the edges. We'll see prices go down. So Mason, um, as we have a couple of minutes left, did we hit most of the items that uh, you've dealt with? Did we miss any any key ones? I think I think you got all my all the things I all my whole shtick. I don't have that much to talk about. So. <laughs> well, so, Chris, but you you got you got to ask about you know the big elephant in the room here. You know, which the, is the, the impending five G doom coming all of our way. The question in my mind was which number Travis would put in front of G. <laughs> <laughs> well, remember, I, remember, I, I've told you 12G is the real, real one we got to worry about, but no, we're not, no, we're dealing with five. So, yes, I'd love to get everyone's opinion on the, uh, and I actually have a story of a 5G user that um, I can, I can close with. But His name is Unicorn. Would, <laughs> yes, I'd be curious what uh, Mason and Deb thought of the upcoming amazement known as 5G is looking like for you guys. Deb, you want to go first? Sure. Um, well, LTE is a big part of our strategy going forward. Um, you know, we sort of the essential thing we believe in is the interoperable platform and making a platform so folks can bring that meet me room to the edges. And I think LTE is part of uh, a, a big part of that, right? Um, so uh, for for us, you know, the the advancements in the five G, um, especially in NATO two eleven AX, um, will be advantageous for that. We um, just need to parse the technology to be utilized by smaller carriers and communities instead of being in the realm of um, monopolistic telcos. That was way less snarky than I expected. 
<laughs> we also, you know, we, we've done plenty of, I mean, I think we've all done plenty of 60 gigahertz millimeter wave stuff. So if that's what folks mean by 5G, that's already being deployed, of course. <laughs> Yawn. <laughs> yeah. And Mason, so the, one of the lines I was thinking of was, was you know, uh, when 5G comes up in the office, are people usually laughing or um, having a different reaction to it? I'll, 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 I guess I'll provide a little of the snark that you're looking for. We, we don't talk about 5G at all. <laughs> uh, so at our office, we're, I mean, I think Deborah has a much, probably a much clearer idea about the industry and, and, you know, where the technology is going. We're really focused on our business here. And so I, looking forward to a faster smartphone, um, I will continue, I can't wait for the next generation of radios to come out. And if they want to call them 5G, We'll use them if they want to call them something else. We'll use them. I mean, we currently use. We probably have probably eight thousand six fixed sixty gigahertz radios deployed in our network. So if if that's five G, then we're using it a lot. I'm not really sure what it's called, but we use a lot of six fixed sixty. And uh, yeah, it's we love radio, and we've you know we'll keep using it. I'll I'll say that I am planning on upgrading my phone with uh, the coming deals toward the end of this month. And uh, my phone's two years old, and I do not expect to get a 5G-capable phone because I just don't care. And I frankly prefer stronger battery life than, than okay. sucking down um, a little bit faster downloads, uh, you know, at the expense of that battery life. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm excited for what 5G will do over the next 10 years. I just don't really care what it's going to do over the next two years at all. So my, so my theory, I have a new theory this week. 5G <laughs> is, is deployed to and, and marketed the way it is to confuse lenders yeah. who would who would yeah. possibly be lending to smaller WISPs and fiber providers. Been saying that for as two some, years. As, oh, I thought this was an original idea. So, um, you know, as somebody that, that does work with our banks, it is the number one question we get uh, as, as far as that goes. But... The, um, the little story I have is a friend of mine decided to take advantage of T-Mobile's brand new 5G product, um, ordered up, got the little box, brought it home, fired it up, um, and it, that box is now being returned back to T-Mobile. The experience was 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 abysmal at best. So did they not I don't achieve know. the the full twenty percent speed gain that T-Mobile actually suggests you could really. No, it was it, 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 it was ridiculous to be honest with you. But you know, in in fairness, um, who knows how close they were to a cell site? You know, the whole the whole thing. But it it was our for, example number one has not gone well. Yeah. Is it T-Mobile planning on, or is it Sprint uh, 700 megahertz band for their 5G deployments? I think they're more looking for coverage than they are. Um, yeah. Well, we I don't know about you guys, but we've had a huge deployment of Verizon putting up microcells all over uh, the Twin Cities here. This was a big, uh, big rollout this summer. And, um, and that's why you have you no know, customers wait. left. Yeah, boy, it's it's hard to find a customer nowadays. Yeah. No, they... Um, <laughs> The, uh, the, the reality is that so far it's not, it's not, all it's doing is confusing lenders at this point for, for us. Yeah. You no, know, one, I, one, my, my one understanding question for is what, Mason. What, what, before ahead, you sorry. do that, my understanding from what Deb was saying is that, is that yes, the sprint combination with T-Mobile is very much about a barely faster. It's basically, I think I've been trying to explain it to people as, um, making, uh, 4G LTE show up on your phone as 5G in deeper into rural areas 
and and it will be slightly better than the 4G LTE you used to see before. Uh, but well, the goal, I think, the goal is definitely a landmass rather than than all the other stuff we've been sold on. The unfortunate thing is, oftentimes these carriers use this this excuse to decommission other towers, um, and then leaving a lot of. I mean, this is mostly an urban discussion, but definitely leaving a lot of rural folks in the in the lurch as they decommission towers um, to move over to whatever latest technology. So, and when you say decommission towers, do they actually take the towers down. Then, I mean, what does that mean? Um, I think a lot of times it just means that they um, they turn off radios, right? So you had um, a while back in Montana, this was a big thing too, a few years ago, um, when they were switching over a lot of their things to 4G LTE from 3G, um, they would just turn off the radios on 3G and, and would not continue to upgrade or maintain those. Um, so that meant that a lot of folks who, um, you know, on the ranch who had a flip phone just did not get any internet at all. It's usually a real estate problem. They need to put up the new 5G antenna, and they don't have enough. They don't have enough space, so down goes the 3G antenna. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I was going to ask Mason: Are you guys a Siklu platform? What are you guys running in your 60 gig? We use uh, so we use uh, we love Siklu for their 70, 80 gigahertz radios. They're really yep. awesome and rock solid, and that's like the core of our wireless network. But yeah, for the Siklu, we use the Siklu, uh, what's it called, the multi-point, multi-hall. Okay. And we also yep. use a lot of the Microtik ones, really cheap and reliable, and it's- Okay. Yeah. So sure, is it, do you guys have big line of sight issues out there, or? Well, it's one of the interesting things about San Francisco is there's a lot of hills, and so it's you, you can kind of and, and a lot of tall buildings, and so we're actually kind of lucky you can use the the you know the high low of all the hills yeah. buildings. So we you know we, we jump around. So we 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 basically put a number of radios on each roof, and at some of the core sites we do layer three networking, and it's it's yeah it's a big it's a big mesh is not I guess not the technical term, but it's a big uh, big mess is what it is. Yeah. And Chris, it's a, it's a key point when it comes to wireless cities that benefit from not having a lot of trees. will will do will do will do much better than than we do here in like a, a jungle. Or I don't know what Oregon's like, but I'm assuming you guys have heavy tree cover out there. But uh, like Tucson, Arizona, that should be the poster child for wireless technology. <laughs> I remember one of the times you were telling me about. Uh... If you ever see a demo for wireless in Tucson, you're very suspicious. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> if there's if there's no attenuation out there, wireless works really well. You know, yeah, it's, it's why it's why rural works so well out here on, on farmland. Mm -hmm. You know, because you, you you can shoot five six miles with nothing in the way. I mean, it's a perfect application for it. But in downtown Minneapolis in July with full bloom, I mean, it's 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 a whole different animal. Mason, you're gonna provide us with a concluding comment, maybe. Oh, I was just gonna say, just you know, on the geeking out about spectrum, like you know, I think, like you know, sometimes, like the, you know, you're at 700 megahertz spectrum, um, is licensed for what did you say it was for? I forget who you said, but like, and then you're trying to get the three point, the three gigahertz spectrum. That that spectrum probably gets really far, and so, you know, in an urban area where there's lots of hills and buildings, you know, it's it's nice. Like five gigahertz is great because. It maybe doesn't go as far as two, but like it kind of creates a, an insulation. It blocks the signal. So sometimes blocking signal is actually benefits you because it, you know, it creates a quieter noise environment. Like, you know, one of the great things about 60 gigahertz is that, you know, it sucks that it doesn't go very far, but you don't have noise interference with anyone else. So, yep. you know, it's, 
the good and the bad of, of uh, the, some of the spectrum that's... No, I, I, I'm envious if you have line of sight. We have about less than 10% of the city that would qualify for line of sight. So, And then where, where there is quality line of sight, we have these things called skyways, which are these bridges between buildings right smack dab in the middle. So it's a, it's a, it's a wireless challenge up here. And then also the, the 20 foot piles of snow part of the <laughs> Yeah. 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 True. <laughs> and so any concluding comments, Deb? Uh, nope. Just, uh, yeah. I agree with what everybody said here. This was a really great discussion. Yeah. I had a lot of fun with it. I, I really appreciate you taking the time and thank you everyone for tuning into connect this. And uh, we'll see you again in probably two weeks. I think we may not be back next week, um, but thank you very much. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, guys. All right. See you guys. Thank you. All right. End the stream there, but um, yeah. Stop the recording. That was great. All and right. yeah, oh, um, you can uh, uh, let Preston know, Mason, that uh, we'll keep an eye out for when we can have him on as well. Um, so... It's, uh, um, you're muted right now. Yeah, he, he loves to geek out on the policy stuff. I'm just much more focused on building the network, so. Yeah. No, it's great. And I, I think it's worth noting, though, that uh, um, if, uh, if we had to recreate the Internet, uh, I think Deb would be the only one qualified to do it because of that grasp of the multi-stakeholder, which I just feel like people like don't – a lot of people are like less interested in that, but that stuff is fascinating how you actually get all these different people to agree. And, and it just gets back to I did a series of podcasts with um, Fred Goldstein about what the Internet really is. And the internet is like social agreements, <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah, that's the thing is like, you know, you get back to, you know, whether, you know, wh wherever you're at at the IX and it's really just, or in, at Nanog, right? Every year at Nanog there's the tables, people get together, they make peering agreements, you know, <laughs> how do we standardize this? How do we do this with, um, with software? Um, so this can come out to the edges cause it works really well. Yeah. Do you have like a plat? Does your platform? I, I didn't. I didn't really do any research before this show. But like, did you? Does your platform like, uh, like, like sort of a in, introduce like people to, to for for, your, for peering arrangements or what? It, so it's.